Good morning, church. The scripture today is Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And if you have the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1029. Let's read together. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will not come like a thief, and you will not know what, at what hour I will com come against you. Yet you, still, yet you have still a few hours in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Steph. Uh, recently, one of our members, Ron Bokel, sent me some notes and pictures of Faith Community Church's origin story. Origin stories are all the rage right now uh, with all the Marvel superheroes and stuff. And well, he sent me uh, the origin story of Faith Community Church. If you're new here to Trinity Community Church, uh, you have joined us in the wake of two, mer uh, two churches merging uh, to become one church. Trinity Church was started back in 2011. Faith Community uh, Community Church, yes, that was the name of this church. Faith Community Church was started all the way back in 1936. In 2018, these two churches merged and became Trinity Community Church. But I want to wander back about 100 years and see if we can trace a little bit of Faith's origin story, which in God's providence is now Trinity's origin story too. So this here is a panorama of the Roslyn Valley dated sometime between 1906 and 1920. The intersection on the left, if you look, uh, is Easton Road and Susquehanna Avenue, if you can kind of get your bearings there. Obviously, this picture was taken before Faith Community Church even existed. And here's the original building. It was called the Hages, Hages Man, does anybody know Hages Mansion? What is it? Okay, okay. Not Hades, H-A-G-E-S. I don't know how you say that, but um, anyway, this is the, the original church building uh, where the church began in November of 1936 uh, with another picture of the Sunday school class that was meeting there in 1937. Uh, this house is no longer standing, but it once stood in the corner of what is now our parking lot back there. Uh, Fifteen years later, in 1952, they broke ground on the building that we sit in right now. Here it is under construction. Uh, a year later, they had their first Sunday gathering in the new facility. June 7th, 1953 was their very first gathering. So this June will mark the 70th anniversary of this building. Those are some old pews that you're sitting in right now. Here's how it looked in 1969. And just for fun, I thought you might like seeing some of these faces from the 75th anniversary in 2011. You might recognize some of them because some of them are in this room right now. I teased Glenn ahead of time. Glenn Dudley is in this picture. If you can find him, where's Waldo? Where's Glenn O? Uh, he's there. I think Grammy Ray is in that picture too. 
If you need to come uh, see a little bit, see this a little bit closer up, uh, you can another time. But anyway, tracking, tracking the history of Faith Community Church was a joy because of the story it tells of faithful men and women who've unflinchingly held to the gospel of Jesus Christ for almost 100 years now. So all of this reminiscing got me thinking about researching what the oldest church in the world is that is still faithfully holding to the gospel, still preaching it. Of course, since the time of Jesus, a zillion churches have been planted and started. But I don't think any church from that time has survived to this day still holding to the truth. It's hard to find many churches that last more than, say, like 100 years. There may be others, but the oldest one I could find this last week uh, was the church that the famed Charles Spurgeon preached at and pastored in the 1800s. It's called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. But by the time Spurgeon showed up in 1853, that church had already been faithfully heralding Jesus for 197 years, since the year 1650. So assuming it's been uh, more or less faithful during that time, and it's still faithful today, still preaching the gospel, I checked their website uh, this last week, that is 373 years of faithfully holding to the word of God. But then this got me thinking, how are churches born? How do they grow up? How do they live as adults? And then how do churches die? How do churches die? Years ago, uh, we were driving by a cemetery and one of our girls said something about the beautiful flowers on the graves. And Miriam said, yep, that's the cemetery. They put flowers on graves there. So another girl pipes up from the back and said, yep, that's where all the bottoms live. All the, all the bottoms live. I kind of expected that to go a little bit different, but she had translated bodies somehow on her little brain into bottoms. So she thought that's where all the bottoms lived. And to be fair, she wasn't wrong. There are lots of bottoms in the cemetery. But if we could survey all of the dead churches throughout history, in the spiritual cemetery, down through the ages, and perform an autopsy on each of these dead churches, what might we find? What causes the death of a church? It got me wandering into some spiritual, introspective morbidity this last week. With such a rich history here at Trinity, will we ever die? Will this church ever die? What will the autopsy show as the primary cause if we do die? This short letter to Sardis, the church in Sardis, begs us to ask this very question before it's too late. This letter is like when the MRI catches the cancer just barely in time. With this in mind, let's get out our collective letter opener and get into Sardis's mail. Tucked inside this little envelope, we find a nearly completed death certificate. All that's left to complete is a final signature from the great physician. But there's a plot twist here. If you would have been like a traveling salesman from the city of Ephesus down in Sardis for the weekend, worshiping at Sardis Community Church, you probably wouldn't have even known that this church was on the brink of death. Look at the end of verse 1 there, Revelation 3, 1. Jesus says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. The question we should all be asking ourselves is, could Jesus say the same thing about Trinity? You have the reputation of being alive, but under the surface, you're dead. In, uh, it's interesting, that word reputation there. 
It's just a word that we get our word name from. So Jesus is saying, you're alive in name only. Names are a very important part of this letter. In just six verses, Jesus uses the same word four times. uh, Verse one, you have the reputation, you have the name of being alive. Verse four, yet you still have a few names in Sardis. Verse five, I will never blot his name out. Verse five again, I will confess his name before my father. I think the emphasis on names here in the letter is to demonstrate that things are not always as they seem. There are Christians who are Christians in name only. Anyone like this, maybe that's someone in here, a Christian in name only, we ought to be nauseatingly disturbed by this. Like Sardis, your spiritual death certificate might already be in the mail. So we want to pay attention this morning to what Jesus says. Speaking of mail, uh, let's work through this letter the same way we have in previous weeks. If you haven't been here at the Trinity with us before, we're just working through the seven letters to the seven churches at the very beginning of the book of Revelation. And we've been doing this, at least I've been doing this, by investigating the four parts of the letter, each of these letters. So we take a magnifying glass to the the two field, if you can imagine a letter, a two field, a from field, the body of the letter, and then the conclusion of the letter. And you'll note again, like all the letters that we've studied previously, that all seven churches are invited to read the mail of the other churches. Something that's illegal in America now is encouraged by Jesus, all right? Don't go rifling through other people's mail, but we do get to go rifling through these churches' mail. Look at verse six. Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. And so there's a sense in which the six other churches are carbon copied on the letters to the single churches. And there's a sense in which we are carbon copied as well. We are CC'd on this letter to Sardis. And so here's where we're headed. Two, morgue with a steeple church in Sardis. We'll explain more about that in a second. Carbon copy, Trinity Community Church from Jesus, the one who has the spirit of God and the churches in his hand. The body, wake up and live or stay asleep and die. And in conclusion, Jesus promises a place on the heavenly roster. So let's start with the two field. Uh, Sardis was a city that was about 50 miles inland from Smyrna, that beautiful coastal city that we studied a few weeks ago, if you recall. This city of Sardis once enjoyed a prominent position as a powerhouse, the capital city of the Lydian Empire. If you've got a quarter or any kind of coin in your pocket this morning, you've got Sardis to thank for that as they invented the world's first coins there in Sardis. Sardis was settled where it was, not so much for its beautiful location. It's not really that beautiful, but it does have a strategic location. I'll show you what I mean. This is a view from below Sardis which sat up atop of that rock face that you see there, relatively safe from encroaching enemies. Sardis was blessed with many natural advantages, like this rock face. It was much easier to protect a mountain, forcing your enemy to fight uphill on all sides, right? The citadel of Sardis has famously throughout history been labeled the strongest place in the world. But things are not always as they seem. You've probably heard that old proverb that says something like, our greatest strength is often our greatest weakness. I think this is true for the city of Sardis. Their safe position atop that citadel had lulled them to sleep and fueled them with overconfidence. The city looked safe but was actually at risk, like the church which looked alive but barely had a pulse. Herodotus 
who was a Greek historian that wrote 500 years before this letter was even written. He wrote of a siege that took place in this city of Sardis. The siege took place 500 years before as well. And he speaks of Cyrus, the Persian king. You've probably heard of Cyrus. Uh, Cyrus was a legitimate historical figure. He was the Persian king, and he was committed to overthrowing the strongest place in the world. And here's how Herodotus described the siege. He said, the following is the way in which Sardis was taken. On the 14th day of the siege, Cyrus made a proclamation to his whole army that he would give a reward to the man who should first mount the wall of Sardis. And by wall, he means that rock face that you see there out in the distance. After this, Cyrus attempted an assault, but without success. His troops retired, but a certain man, his name was Hyroides by name, resolved to approach the citadel and attempt it at a place where no guards were ever set. On this side, the rock was so precipitous and the citadel, as it seemed, so impregnable that no fear was entertained of its being overcome in this place. Hyroides, though, having the day before observed a soldier from Sardis descend the rock after a helmet had rolled down from the top, I guess the guy fell asleep or something and his head tilted over and the helmet came down the hill, and having seen him pick it up and carry it back, thought over what he had witnessed. And he formed his plan. He climbed the rock himself. He followed that guy's plan up the rock face, the guy who had come down the hill and gotten his helmet. And the other Persians followed Hyroides in his track until a large number had mounted to the top. Thus was Sardis taken and given entirely up to pillage. The strongest part of the city ended up being the very place where they were most vulnerable. This seems to me to be an intentional uh, theme in this letter to the church in Sardis. Because of its past successes, overconfidence ruled the city, and it led to its undoing. Under the illusion of strength, the city fell asleep. He fell asleep on its enemies, and it was eventually victimized by the Persians. This very same overconfidence crept in to the city after they recovered from the siege, just a few hundred years later, they, were, they fell victim to another siege, the same kind of siege of the same rock face. So the city began, began to be known for its overconfidence. And I think the attitude of the city had infected the church. The city of Sardis was content with its reputation of being an impregnable city and so let down its guard. The church in Sardis was content with its reputation of being a thriving church and so let down its guard. Isn't it interesting how the church often takes on the weaknesses of the culture in which it is situated? We see it happening all over the world right now, don't we? Churches are bowing their knees to culture. Culture never comes to the church for its cues for some reason. But for some reason, the church is always looking to the culture for its cues. It should not be. Jesus did not want them, and he does not want us falling prey to the same thing. That's why he warns them of this thief in the night there in verse 3. He's hinting, I think, at the city's precarious history. If we think that we are strong, we should take heed lest we fall. So that's the to. That's who this letter is written to. How about the from? Maybe you remember from previous weeks that what Jesus emphasizes about himself at the beginning of each of these letters is found in his description back in chapter one that we covered a couple of months ago. 
So what is emphasized about that description in chapter one? What is emphasized again here in chapter three? Look at verse one. It says, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. If you flip back to chapter one, you'll see what he's quoting there. Look at uh, Revelation one, verse four. You can see it on screen. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Well, who are these seven freaky spirits that we read about here? Well, maybe you remember that throughout the scriptures, and particularly in Revelation, the number seven isn't so much a numerical designation. Uh, It's more a, a reference to fullness, completeness, perfection. Are there seven Holy Spirits? No. There is one. This is just a poetic way of describing the fullness of the Spirit's ministry to us. Jesus has the fullness of the Holy Spirit, is the idea. And we should ask ourselves why Jesus picked this part of the description to encourage the church in the city of Sardis. He could have picked any of those things from uh, Revelation 1, but he picked this one for them. Why? Well, what's the description of the church? In verse 1, it says, it is dead. And Jesus knows what it will take to wake this church from its deadly slumber. Perhaps you recall one of the primary qualities of the Holy Spirit that comes out in his resume. Here's one part of his resume, 1 Peter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The Spirit brings life where there was death. Sardis needed reviving, and it would start with the reviving Spirit of God. Jesus, or, or John, quoting Jesus in his gospel, says this, John six sixty three: it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. Jesus knows that Sardis's spiritual condition isn't going to be fixed just by rolling up their sleeves, a realignment of mission, some new fancy branding, a new mission statement. No. What Sardis needs is spirit-wrought revival. Spirit-wrought revival. So let's stop here for a second. What Trinity needs is spirit-wrought revival. Without the Spirit continually breathing his life into us, we will die as a church. That will be what comes out when we have our autopsy done on us eventually. I'm sometimes concerned that we've forgotten about this. I've been personally greatly convicted in recent weeks that I am content with a a growing church, a growing budget, but indifferent to the Spirit's reviving work. I wonder if you ever feel that pull yourself. It's, It's kind of fun to be a part of a church that's growing, isn't it? I've certainly enjoyed it, riding the wave of momentum. I've thanked God for it. But might one of our strengths be giving way to a greater weakness? Do we have a reputation of being alive, but closer to death than we realize? Why pray if the pews are filling up anyway? I'll tell you why. Because it is the spirit who gives and maintains life, and the flesh is no help at all. We access that life, that spirit life, through prayer, not through plodding effort. Sometimes we need to stop grinding, stop pressing, stop doing, and just start praying 
not out of duty, not out of discipline because we're supposed to, but out of desperation, spirit. If you don't work, ain't nothing going to happen. We're going to get back to being more of a praying church together. We're going to be providing more opportunities for prayer together. I'll be speaking more about these opportunities tonight at our family meeting. So members, please don't miss this. We don't want to let the growth of our church lull us to sleep. That's how we'll be handed our death certificates. Years ago, I was reading a blog or a tweet or something, I don't remember, but I often reflect on the content of this post because of how powerfully it landed on me. It said this, a prayerless preacher is an eventual hypocrite. What is a hypocrite but someone who has a reputation, a name for being something that they are not? The longer a prayer drought goes, the more hypocritical you and I become. I know this from experience. You probably do too. Without the tether of desperate prayer, we quickly wander down the path of performance rather than dependence. This is sleepy and eventually deadly discipleship. This is why I use that phrase, morgue with a steeple church. That phrase is not original with me. It comes from a guy named Chuck Swindoll, but I do think it's a fitting description. Outside, the church of Sardis looked like a shiny, beautiful church with a beautiful steeple, but inside it was a morgue filled with mostly and nearly dead Christians. Maybe we could rework this just a little bit for us. A prayerless church is an eventual zombie church. I think the most disturbing things about zombies is that they're kind of like a mirage of life, not actual life. They kind of look and move like they're living when they're actually dead. The goal in zombie movies is always to avoid becoming one of the zombies, right? Avoid becoming one of the walking dead. And the plot normally circles around whether or not the unaffected people can find an immunization against the sickness before it's too late, right? Well, Jesus is writing to give us the immunization schedule, and that schedule is full of prayer because the Spirit is our immunization from being a sleeping, dying church. So as opportunities roll out, will you please join me and our other elders as we give ourselves more and more to the ministry of desperate dependence through prayer. Join us in this. We've seen the two. We've seen the from. Let's now move to the body of this letter. So this is like the main idea, the big idea, a portable main idea from this letter that you can hopefully take home with you today. Wake up and live or stay asleep and die. Wake up and live or stay asleep and die. There are a few different ways that my kids can be woken up. They all wake up differently. If you have kids, you probably have this experience too. For one of them, I can legit whisper from the other end of a house on a different floor and that wakes her up. Uh, and the other, I have to go nuclear on her, like shaking her like this and I can shout in her faith, face violently and there's just nothing, right? Nothing at all. I'm not sure, spiritually speaking, how asleep you are today. But I feel certain that Jesus has some nudging for all of us. Maybe today will be that nuclear shout to wake you up from your slumber, or maybe you just need a little nudge, but we all need something. 
I remember growing up, my, my grandfather always had these funny-looking white lines all the way down, like the inside of his leg, right here. And I'd always ask him what those things were. And he'd tell me that they removed the veins from his leg. I don't know how this works. They removed the, the veins from his legs to help his heart. Maybe somebody can help me with that later. I don't, David, I'm putting you on the spot again. You can teach me about that uh, afterwards. Uh, but I imagine that he had at least three pretty intense conversations with his doctor. Uh, there was a diagnosis about his heart, a prognosis for his heart, and then treatment about how to fix his heart. Uh, the first was a discussion about the diagnosis of his problem. It probably went something like this. Stu, my grandfather's name was Stu. Stu, there's a major blockage in your heart, and it is very serious. And evidently, if we take a, a vein out of your leg, it will help. Um, and then there was a prognosis. If we don't act radically and immediately, you're in serious danger of death, premature death. And then third came the treatment. Good news, Stu. The surgery was successful, but listen, if you don't change these things that got you here in the first place, you're going to die an early death. You only have so many leg veins that you can give up to help your heart. But if you do make these changes... I feel confident that you can and will live a longer, healthier life. So that's grim, but it is not without hope. And do you know what? His diet changed. More fish, less steak. His exercise habits changed. Suddenly, it wasn't a chore to get up early and go on a walk with my grandma before work or to skip the elevator in his, combo, in his, in his condo and opt for the stairs. Why? Because his life was on the line. So let's follow that pattern for Sardis here, and let's see if there's any overlap here at Trinity. Diagnosis, prognosis, treatment. Diagnosis, here it is. Sardis was a church for themselves. Sardis was a church for themselves. As Jesus looks over the body there in Sardis, he pulls out the stethoscope of the spirit, and he sees that the heart is still beating, even though just a little bit weakly, or a lot weakly. There is a faint pulse, they're in critical condition, but it is not terminal yet. Jesus describes their situation like being asleep. And what is it that we think that Sardis had fallen asleep on? While they were snoozing, did they become doctrinally compromised like some of the other churches had that we've discussed? Were they relationally divided? Were they missionally distracted? What is the charge here exactly that Jesus is making? My hunch is that Sardis had become missionally distracted. A church for itself, a good church that cared well for itself internally, but only that, they were a church just for themselves. That is to say, they had become no earthly good in their city. Here's why I think this. Look down at verses four and five, where Jesus is encouraging this faithful remnant there in Sardis. Starting in verse four, he says, yet you still do have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. And the next verse is key in determining the precise diagnosis. He says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out from the book of life. That's that heavenly roster that we talked about. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So Jesus is saying, look, if you do X, then I won't do Y. If you do this, 
I won't blot you out of the book. I won't take you out of heaven's roster. So I think what Jesus is doing here is he's calling back to another conversation that he had with his disciples while he was physically present here on earth. Do you remember this account back in Matthew 10? I'll put it on screen for you in case you don't. He says this, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So there are a few reasons that I think this missional indifference is what was plaguing the church at Sardis. A few chapters later in Revelation, John is referencing these white robes again. And pay careful attention to who gets the white robes here. You can follow along again. He says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Why were these people killed? For being faithful witnesses of Jesus. What were they given in return? White robes. What are the faithful remnant in Sardis given? White robes. So I I think Sardis Community Church's witness had become compromised in their city. They had begun to shrink away from the church's duty, a Christian's duty, to speak hope, the hope of Jesus, into a hopeless city. I mean, listen, the church, among Christians, at least, Sardis Community Church, SCC, appeared to be a, a solid church. They came highly recommended by other Christians, but were a non-factor among non-Christians in their city. Sardis Community Church had a growing budget, solid theology, a sweet website. But in the city, the witness was silent. You can see more hints of this up in verse two. Jesus says, I have not found your works complete. They were leaving the ministry of mission undone. They weren't speaking the gospel and they weren't showing the gospel to their city. When opportunities arose in the church to coordinate for mission, the sign-up list remained blank. When conversations with neighbors occurred, Jesus was tucked neatly out of sight. Slowly over time, they fell asleep to their mission and they became a church for themselves. Their Sundays were great, doctrinally sound, wonderfully attended, but Monday to Saturday, their sights were set on the here and now. They failed to align themselves boldly with their Savior. Hear these sobering words from a guy named Greg Morse. He says, this temptation to be ashamed of Jesus appears pre-baked into our seemingly post-Christian culture. Our embarrassment is fixed blush on the cheek, the accumulation of small moments in which we harmlessly choose love for reputation, love for esteem, love for ease, for money, for our own lives, over the love for Christ and love for souls. We don't speak much of Jesus. We take the path of less awkwardness. We fit in more and more with unbelieving friends and coworkers. We don't go there with our unbelieving family as we did before. Our neighbors don't even know we're Christians, and our own family often wonders. Sure, we show up on Sundays like good Christians, but if that's all we do, it just means we're a church for ourselves. 
That's the diagnosis. What about the prognosis? If current patterns continued, their church and their souls would die. Look at verse three. If you will not wake up, Jesus says, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Uh, That's a reference to the church's existence there in the city, but there's something more personally disturbing here too in verse five. Look at verse five. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. But remember like the opposite of that is what Jesus said back in Matthew 10. He says that everyone who acknowledges Jesus before men, he will acknowledge before his father who is in heaven. But whoever denies Jesus before men, he will deny before his father who is in heaven. So Jesus is saying, look, you're about to die a spiritual death. But like my grandfather, though the prognosis was grim, the treatment breathes life, breathes hope into a dire situation. So he says, wake up, strengthen what remains, and get back to work. My grandfather's treatment was multifaceted. Take these pills, eat these foods, do these exercises. The treatment for Sardis was multifaceted too. Four things here. Wake up and strengthen up. Wake up and think back. Wake up, turn around, wake up, and work out. Let's just tick through these briefly. When I say it out loud, it kind of sounds silly, but I'm hoping to make it memorable for us this morning. Wake up and strengthen up. This is what the call here is in verse 2. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So the church had become lethargic, content with looking the part, but indifferent to being the part. They had started strong, but they had lost so much momentum. So whatever was left, they needed to bulk that up. So what should they do about it? And what can we do about it? Jesus is insinuating that there is a way to gain strength back. They'd grown flabby, unattentive, just like the city when it had been sieged. They'd grown comfortable, and before they knew it, they'd become content with mediocre, comfortable, convenient Christianity. But hear Jesus' words in John 15. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. How are we ever going to have the fuel to stay on mission if we are not feeding on the vine? None of us will bear the fruit of mission without abiding. If you lack interest in declaring Jesus to the lost, perhaps it's because you're pretty detached from the life-giving vine. There have been seasons in my life where I have slumped. I fall away from living in this book, from being on my knees in desperation. And I'll be honest with you, during those seasons, I've always kind of thought that I would pull myself out of the tailspin eventually and get back into my old faithful rhythms. But it's a foolish thought. You cannot microwave yourself back to a warm relationship with Jesus. Like 30 seconds and I'm there. Unfortunately, it's not that quick and not that easy. There are no shortcuts, just long-term faithful abiding. So wherever you're at today in your walk, your journey with Jesus, Wake up and strengthen whatever remains. Reattach yourself to the vine through the spiritual disciplines and just see what Jesus will do through you. And at the same time, we have to remember that all of our abiding and walking with Jesus does have a purpose outside of ourselves. 
Trinity, we are not a church just for ourselves. Jesus doesn't need Trinity, even if we get all of our doctrine right. Jesus didn't just put us here to be right, though hopefully we are. He put us here to be light. And we aren't this source of light. So we need to reattach ourselves to the vine, who is the source of light for the world. Next treatment, wake up and think back. Jesus urges them there in verse three to think back on what they have received and heard and then to remember. We talk about remembering a lot here at Trinity. It's probably one of our greatest human needs, remembering to remember. We get so distracted with all the stuff smack dab in front of our faces that we forget to remember all that God has done. But if we were to slow down more and intentionally remember what God has done for us, particularly in the gospel, we'd get off mission a whole lot less, I think. Wise Christians, mission-minded Christians, remember to remember the gospel. They spend their lives remembering. They put daily and weekly rhythms in their lives to help them remember. And I think we can be sure that what John means here, what Jesus means here, is not for us to occasionally remember or merely remember in the sense of bring this to mind occasionally. This is deeper than like mere rote memorization. Surely John means, let what you have been taught grip you and move you. Feel the memory of the gospel deep in your bones and let it cause you to act. Third treatment, wake up and turn around. Repentance means to turn around. You're facing your sin this way and you turn this way and you embrace Jesus instead. Repent, turn around. The, the, the treatment for a distracted church is to remember God's gospel kindness and to allow that to lead them, to lead us to repentance. Romans 2.4, God's kindness is meant to lead you to turn around, to embrace the mission, to set aside distraction. Look, I can fool you, you can fool me, but none of us can fool the Lord, all right? Don't pretend to be something you're not. Let's not be the morgue with a steeple, but a group of repenters constantly repenting. Will we miss the mark on this? Totally, for sure. But let us repent each time and re-enter the battle. Final treatment, wake up and work out. By work out, I don't mean lift weights. I mean work out your salvation to complete the incompleted works there in verse two. All that abiding we do should be strengthening us to bear fruit and to get back to the works that we have left incomplete incomplete as a church. Our indifference to God's priorities in our city is bad for us in our sanctification. Clearly, it's bad for our city, and it's an insult to God. When we fail to speak and show the gospel, our city is worse for it. Really what Jesus is calling you to do and me to do is to do what you already do, just with gospel intentionality. Right here in our own neighborhoods or in your own neighborhood, wherever you live, you do not need to retreat from how you are gifted, how you are wired. Your calling isn't valued whether it's vocational ministry like mine is or out of vocational ministry. Do you know how many kids are dying? Do you know what type of addiction is spreading, even in our clean clean-cut suburbs out here? Do you know how full our prisons are? Do you know how much sexual and opiate bondage 
There is out there. Do you know how many marriages are on the brink of collapse? How many teens are on the cusp of suicide? There is a 9-11's worth of babies being aborted every single day. A Jesusless existence is a dark, forsaken, hopeless path. So this is not the time for us to lose our desperation. This is the time all the more to have it and to plead with God by his spirit, to hear him whispering to us, go, and then to take the radical, risky plunge, the glorious plunge. So as a church, let us not grow civilized like Sardis had. Let us not get lulled to sleep by our moderate numerical growth. Don't let our strength become a weakness. Praise God, the room is a little bit fuller than it once was. Things don't seem quite as dire now, do they? Things seem a little bit less pressing, but they're not less pressing because souls are still on the line. People need the Lord. My concern is that the desperation that led those in the early days of Trinity and the early days of faith, that desperation that led them to fall on their faces and just beg God to do something surprising and amazing among them has vanished into something like, hey, we're the little church that could. Look around, there's new people everywhere. God help us if that's the truth. Here's what Chuck Swindoll says, a dead church lacks evangelistic and missionary zeal turned inward on their own needs. Look, we should turn inward on our own needs. We should care well for one another internally. We should be a church for ourselves. We should not be a church just for ourselves. Turn inward on their own needs, preferences, and comfort. Unhealthy churches give half-hearted attention to the conversion of the lost. In contrast, living churches devote time, resources, and energy to both local evangelism and worldwide missions. If you feel the stiffness of spiritual rigor mortis setting in, take Christ's words to heart. Wake up and declare devotion. So let's ask ourselves some questions. When is the last time we stepped off the ledge in faith, took a risk, and engaged someone in a redemptive conversation? When's the last time you invited someone who needs Jesus into your home to share a meal with you? When's the last time you invited a friend to share a Sunday right here with you? When's the last time you accepted an invitation to hang out with coworkers after work with gospel intent? When's the last time you said more than, hey, to your neighbor? This may seem like an intimidating task. It does to me too. But I think that we forget that things are not always as they seem. We aren't just mere robotic humans who get up every day, go to work, come home, play with kids, put them in bed, fall in bed ourselves, and get up and do it all over again the next day. No way. We are in an actual, legit, spiritual battle that might seem like a fairy tale, but it is reality. It cannot be detected by the human eye, but listen to reality here from Roman, uh, Revelation chapter 12. This is what's actually going on in our world right now. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down 
Who accuses them day and night before our God? And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb, obviously. But listen to this. They have conquered him, the devil, by the word of their testimony. That is wild. We, by the word of our testimony, can throw down on the devil himself by the Spirit's power. What an enormous privilege to play a role in making waste on the one who has ruined our world. Jesus lets us in on the battle, and he promises the victory. Like we sing a lot recently, he's already won. And so why are we shy? Why are we embarrassed? And do you see what the reward is there in verses 4 to 6? Jesus clothes us in his righteous robes, and we will walk with him. A place in the book of life on heaven's roster. Don't you want that reward? New robe, hanging with Jesus, a place in the book of life. I want that reward. But some of us are kind of coldly indifferent. We're unmoved by these last three verses in this letter because probably we are kind of preoccupied with the here and now. Uh, Seven or eight years ago, during our bedtime routine, one of our girls asked us if Abraham, I guess we had read about him in in the the Bible that we were reading, she asked us, is Abraham a real person? Like, is, is Abraham alive today? And I explained that, though Abraham used to be alive on the earth, now he lives in God's house. And another girl pipes up, one day we'll get to go live in God's house, right? Yes, of course. I say, yes, of course. But one of the other girls, and I honestly don't remember which ones were which at this point, so I couldn't even give them a dollar if I wanted to by naming them. Uh, Another girl uh, was suspicious about this. She said, "But, but what about our house? And she had set me up perfectly as the pastor dad here to be super spiritual at bedtime. And I said, God's house is way cooler with way better kitchens, way better toys, way better stuff. Proud of my answer. I looked back down at her. (laughs) She was legitimately sobbing. Um, But Daddy, I don't want to go over there. And I said, over where? Where don't you want to go? She she says, I I don't want to go over to Jesus because I just love our new kitchen. And I think it was right after Christmas and she had just received a a brand new play kitchen, you know, one of those toys that uh, you and your spouse uh, are putting together on Christmas Eve, and uh, you're lucky to be married by the end of it, probably because you bought it from Ikea. You know those kinds of furniture. It was, it was that kind. Um, she loved her kitchen, and logically, leaving for Jesus' kitchen meant leaving for some kitchen that wasn't quite as good as that uh, plywood kitchen that was painted pink that she had just gotten. Her short-sightedness had gotten her into trouble, and so does ours. Are we more consumed with our kitchens here than we are with our future there? God, help us see through the mirage of this world. We can be sure that collectively as a church, if we don't see through that mirage, the death certificate will soon be in the mail for our church too. The Sardian Christians had become so comfortable with the world that they had no real price to pay in the world. I'm sure they thought of themselves as awake and vibrant, maybe like we do too, but they weren't. I think of all the churches so far that we've studied, Sardis should cause the greatest alarm and the greatest amount of introspection for us. Listen, church, nominal Christianity isn't Christianity at all. Resolve now, God helping you to live for Christ and nothing but Christ, no matter the cost. And it's getting costlier to do this in our world now. Don't blush to speak his name. 
or to stand by every word that he has spoken. If we refuse this, we can be sure the death certificate is in the mail. But I don't want that, and I suspect that you don't want that either. So four just quick uh, sort of boots-on-the-ground applications. Individually, an application to this would be start on your knees. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Collectively, join us on our knees. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. We need the Spirit to work in us, among us, and through us. Third, so individually, collectively, and now another individually. Individually, start somewhere. Start that workplace in your Bible study, like one of our members is talking with me about right now. Talk to that neighbor. Say more than hello. That's individually. How about collectively? Collectively, join us on mission. So for you members, we've been talking about this opportunity for about a year, and it's, uh, and it's hopefully finally coming a little bit more to fruition. We have this Seed to Oaks venture that is going to help us understand our community better and know how to meet the needs of our specific community in our specific uh, zip codes, this one and the one that you live in. Uh, they're going to help us think through how to do mission well in those zip codes. If you are able to join us in that process, it would be amazing. We need more hands on deck for that. Uh, we can't change everything, we cannot fix everything or save everyone, but we can do what God puts in front of us with spirit-fueled effort. God save Trinity from ending up in the morgue. Wake up and live or stay asleep and die. Will you pray with us now? Laura is going to come pray for us a prayer of application. Lord God, thank you for your word. Um, it's alarming, God. They were dead, and I pray, Lord, that it would alarm us. Help us to look in our own hearts. Give us humility, God. Help us to not have goals of being safe or easy. Um, God, help us to not be dead. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit. Thank you that it gives us life. Thank you that you give us access to that through Jesus. God, I ask that you would help us to be reliant on you um, in, in our culture, in our area, Lord. It is a little bit easy to be dependent on ourselves. And God, I pray that we would not be. I pray, Lord, that we would see you for the true, with our true need for you, God. Um, I thank you, Lord, that the word made clear um, the response in verses two and three. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us, help us to abide in you, help us to remember, help us to repent when we fail. God, I ask um, that you would draw us near. I pray, Lord, that you would wake us up. Amen.